0: For six, I was so impressed, and um, I, I'm not gonna name any names. I don't wanna uh, embarrass anybody, but, but word got back to me that someone made a comment on about Sunday, sitting in service on Sunday morning. The comment was, I, I have never felt so loved. And I thought, how marvelous that someone would come to Experience the love of God in the middle of a teaching called killing sin dead. <laughs> How does that work? It works because the love of God permeates everything, and everything that He does and everything that His Word teaches us leads us into that place of understanding. This is a God who passionately loves us. It's what He's about, and it's what He draws us into. Even in the judges, This is a God of love trying to call his his errant people back to him. And I just thought that was wonderful. I wanted to share that with you. But we're going to dive right in. Judges chapter 6, as we begin tonight, verse 1, Then the sons of Israel did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. And the Lord gave them into the hands of Midian seven years. The power of Midian prevailed against Israel because of Midian, the sons of Israel made for themselves the dens which were in the mountains and the caves and the strongholds. We were reading this this morning and Jake pointed out how dramatic a turn of events from the times of Joshua where the people came into the land victorious to now they are hiding in caves in the same land. Unbelievable. That's what faithlessness does. It takes us out of the promise and sticks us in caves and and hidey holes and places of fear. Well, that's where they are. Verse three, for when it was Israel, or for when it was Israel had sown, that the Midianites would come up with the Amalekites and the sons of the east and go against them and they would camp against them and destroy the produce of the earth as far as Gaza and leave no sustenance in Israel as well as no sheep, ox, or donkey. They would come up with their livestock and their tents and they would come in like locusts for number and it's a good picture because locusts come into the land, they strip the land, they leave and the land is stripped and the locusts are gone. That's what the Midianites and Amalekites are doing here. Both they and their camels were innumerable and they came into the land to devastate it. They came up and into the land. The Midianites were not already in the land, nor were the Amalekites, but they came up and into the land to devastate it. I don't know that there's ever been a time in the existential state of Israel when they have not dwelt in the midst of their enemies. May 14th, 1948, the state of Israel declared its independence and on May 15th, they were invaded by five Arab nations. They have ever since been a nation on terror watch. You know, for us in America, this is still a recently new phenomenon that we have to even be aware of or pay attention to terror. That's been the modern state of Israel's entire existence. And if you go back further than that, for the nation of Israel prior to all this, prior to AD 70, they were always a a nation under oppression, always a nation that had enemies surrounding them. Now, granted, right now, we're watching the Abraham Accords take place and and. The movement on that has slowed definitely in the last year or two, but the Abraham Accords are a stunning development that there are actually Arab nations that are uh, making peace with Israel. I think it's just an example that we are moving, the needle is moving steadily close to the final seven years of this age. I think it's all part of where everything's headed. But Israel is a nation surrounded by enemies. They were then, they are now. Enemies from within, enemies from without. According to the most recent Pew Research poll, this just came out this week, 58% of Americans, 58% do not believe we are living in the end times. Now that's not surprising to me. I would, I would imagine most people don't think. Nah, no, nah, no, this is not the end. To you, you wacky end times people. You know, 58% of Americans do not believe that these are the end times. What surprised me is 39% think so. That, that to me was a surprising number. I would have figured it was around 10 or 11%. But 39% of Americans actually state, actually believe we are in what they would call the end times. Now, even the end times can be dramatically uh, defined differently depending on, on who it is and, and what they believe. But among self-described Christians, so these are people in this, in this poll who say, I am a Christian, 76% of black Protestants, 76%, that's a big number, and 63% of evangelicals believe we're in the last days. It then drops from that 63% of evangelicals down to 31% of mainline Protestants. And that's another kind of surprising number to me that it's so low among Protestants. uh, Basic, you know, mainline denominations, about 30% believe these are the last days. It means 70% of believing Christians in Protestant denominations do not think that we're in the last days. 27% of Catholics believe we're in the last days. Among all of these, and again these are this is just a poll, so these are just percentages based on a poll, but but interesting, among all of these there are only there's only 14% of American Christians who believe that the end of this age will culminate with the return of Jesus and world conditions will worsen until then. So now we're starting to get to I think some more realistic numbers. And I will add this, the majority of those who believe that these are the end times and that Jesus is coming soon do not believe or fear that climate change will cause the end of the world. (laughs) And I'm there, I'm there. And I've been very outspoken about that. It's not that I don't uh, want to take care or believe that we should be uh, caretakers of the earth and stewards of what God has given us. It's not even that I even care to have the argument about climate change. Is it real? Is it not real? The reality is for me is either way it doesn't matter, it's not going to destroy the world. Well, how do you know that, Rick? Because we're told how the world is destroyed. The Bible's very clear about that. We know, yes, there's a global warming. It happens in an instant when the earth and the heavens are burned up. You know? (laughs) Ask Peter about that one. So, you know, I don't worry about those things because I know where we're headed. I know. According to scripture, Jesus is gonna come back and he's gonna restore this planet for a thousand-year millennial kingdom. So the planet's not gonna be destroyed before that. Nuclear war, it's not gonna happen. Now, there may be a nuclear bomb dropped at some point. I don't know. I'm not saying that that couldn't happen on the planet, but Jesus is gonna restore all things And he's gonna rule and reign from Jerusalem in a complete fulfillment to all of God's promises to Israel that there will be a kingdom and a king sitting on the throne of David, ruling and reigning from Jerusalem. This is scripture, folks. So I have that to look forward to. Talk about your hope. You know, this is all out ahead of us. These are good things that are to come. And yet, do you ever feel like you are surrounded by evil and wickedness? Do you ever just look around, read the news, think about what's happening in the world and think, man, it's not just, it's not only just unbelief anymore, do you ever feel like you're surrounded at times by hostile opposition to Christianity? It's always been this way. You know, when it comes to the people of God, there's always been hostile opposition to what God was doing. Ephesians six twelve tells us for our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the powers, against the world forces of this darkness, against the spiritual forces of wickedness in the heavenly places. But here's the good news, that while Israel felt surrounded, was surrounded by enemies, while we might feel surrounded or even be surrounded by spiritual darkness and enemies, the good news is, 2 Corinthians chapter 10, verse four, we've quoted this a lot recently, the weapons of our warfare are not of the flesh, but divinely powerful for the destruction of fortresses. So let me underscore what these weapons are real quickly. And it's pertinent, I believe, to where we're going in our study. What are these weapons? Well, best of all, we've got Christ in us. Colossians 1.27, Christ in you, the hope of glory. That's A number one. You could have the entirety of history standing against you, hostile toward you, but if you have Christ in you, who can touch you? If God before us, who could be against us, Paul says in Romans 8. So we have... As, as we begin to survey the weapons of our warfare, we've got Christ in us, number one. Secondly, then we have the full armor of God. That's some good armor. You can read about the full armor in Ephesians chapter six. And with that, offensively, we have the sword of the spirit, which is the word of God. And we have the power of prayer and petition, Ephesians chapter six, verses 12 through 19, talk about all of the the armor and the sword and prayer. We have been, in addition to that, sealed by the spirit as a pledge of our future inheritance. God is, Jake, you also said this, God does not make a promise without fulfilling it. He doesn't give a pledge without seeing it through. And so we even have his indwelling Holy Spirit as a pledge, a seal, if you will, of our inheritance for the day of our redemption, 2 Corinthians one twenty-two, Ephesians 1.13, Ephesians 4.30. And it's my intention to get through all those verses in the first five minutes of teaching. <laughs> Though we may be surrounded by enemies, there's one other thing to note. We are also surrounded by angels. We don't talk a lot about this in the church. We acknowledge angels from time to time, but I'm talking in a very actual, literal, real-time way. We are surrounded by angels. Hebrews 14. are they not all ministering spirits sent out to render service for the sake of those who will inherit salvation? Which means in this place tonight, there will be angels in this room. There are angels that surround God's people and minister to God's people and serve and support God's people in ways we don't even realize. And all of this, we may be surrounded. I think of, was it Elijah's servant, Gah- Godzi, who saw them surrounded by the enemy and Elijah prayed that God would open his eyes and he looks and there's angel armies all around the outskirts of the enemies? And that's where we stand today. The Israelites came into the promised land and were immediately surrounded by hostile enemies. But they had the Lord and they had the promises. And it's only when we forget those things that we begin to tremble and we begin to be fearful and we begin to fail, if you will, in our faith. Now, there's something else here, that's, that's this dynamic in the opening verses of chapter six that we need to recognize, and we've been kind of, I think, scratching at this a little bit since we began, Judges, but it really hit home to me this week that their struggle was not just from within, but it was from without. Okay, so they came into the land of Canaan, and you've got the Canaanites and the Hittites and the Hivites and the Perizzites and the Megabytes and the Flashlights and all the rest, And they had to struggle against those that were in the land and the fight was real and difficult and and some that they tried to drive out, they didn't feel like they could And, and so you have these pockets of the people of the land of Canaan and you had marauders and invaders from the outside. You've got both going on here. Why does that matter? Because their failure to clear the land of the wickedness within made their ability to fight the wickedness from without, all the more problematic. Why do you think God said, clear the land? Yes, it was for justice. Yes, it was for God's righteousness, his wrath being fulfilled. But it was also that the land would be clear so the people would have a strong, stable foothold because guess what? There's gonna be attacks coming from outside of the land too. And when the inside of the land is filled with opponents, and the outside of the land is surrounding you as in enemies, this is a difficult place to be. The point is that we are fighting battles. We are going to fight battles, we must fight battles against the foe who is on the outside, but when we allow sin to remain on the inside, we are weakened for the greater fight. No wonder the Lord tells us, drive out sin, kill sin dead. Because where we allow sin to reside in our lives, it weakens us to the fight that's gonna come from the outside anyway. Fight the good fight of the faith. And one of the best ways to begin to truly fight that fight is to say no to the sin that would otherwise try to reside in the land of your heart. Paul put it this way in 1 Corinthians 9.27, and I've referred to this verse many times, great verse. He says, I discipline my body and make it my slave so that after I have preached to others, I myself will not be Disqualified. Now I always clarify that because that's not saying that he disciplines himself so he won't be disqualified for salvation. It's he disciplines himself so the message of the gospel will not be disqualified. So that when he preaches the truth, that then when people look at his life, they can compare his life to the truth and say that lines up. There's integrity there. So the message itself doesn't die. My son Cory and I were driving over here tonight and, and we were laughing about some uh, Brian Regan lines, some, some comedy coming up, and we were just cracking up together and, and Cory got quiet for a minute and he goes, Dad, I wish that hadn't happened with Bill Cosby because I had so many funny memories of funny things. He said, I immediately think of the whole Noah sketch that he did early on. It's so funny and it's so sad. That's an example. The com- even the comedy. Bill Cosby is disqualified because of the lack of integrity. Well, you apply this to our Christian life and we become weaker in the fight when we allow sin to reside in our lives. We disqualify ourselves from even fighting the greater fight, speaking the message of the gospel. But where sin is driven out and we have a foothold and the Holy Spirit has hold of us and we are strengthened in our inner man, in our inner woman to fight these battles, well, guess what? When the enemy comes in like a flood, we're strong. We're ready to fight, not because of ourselves, but because of our obedience to the Lord Jesus Christ, because of his presence in us and among us. So just be thinking about that, because again, Israel's problems double, because not only now do they have to deal with the sin, with the wickedness, with the evil, with the Canaanites within the land, but now they've got Midianites and Amalekites coming from without. Remember Cushan-Rishathaim. Taim? The Aramean king from Aram was coming down. So he came down from the north outside of the land to oppress Israel. Now the Midianites and the Amalekites, they're coming up from the south to oppress and attack Israel. Adding up all the oppression, the years of oppression so far during the judges, and if you add in the respite, the peace that Israel has had, this nauseating carousel has now been spinning for 206 years. So we're that far into the 390 or so years of the judges. We're already 206 years in. By the time we land at chapter six, and that's just looking at the scriptures to figure that out. We are just beyond the midpoint of the times of the judges. And notice back in verse one again, it says the Lord gave them into the hands of Midian seven years. That is a time frame equal to the time of Jacob's distress. Jeremiah 30, verse seven. That coming tribulation about which Jesus spoke. If you believe in me, if you hold fast to me, if you trust in me, if you hold to the word of my perseverance, I will keep you from the time of testing that is about to come upon the whole world. The tribulation seven-year period of time that is about to come and it will dramatically impact Israel and it will be an outpouring of wrath, the wrath of God on this world. It's just interesting to me that now Midian comes in and God gives them into Midian for the same period of time, seven years. In verse six, continuing on, we know now the Midianites and the Amalekites have come in from the outside. says Israel was brought very low because of Midian. And the sons of Israel cried to the Lord, and it's that same word for cried that we've seen so far. It's not cried with repentance; it's just cried out in distress. They're just crying out. And so often, God responds to the cries even before our hearts turn to repentance, because as we've said, it's the kindness of God that leads to repentance. So we cry; He responds in His kindness, His mercy, and grace, and we repent. And that's how the process tends to go. Well, something to know about Midian here and the Amalekites, these two groups coming in. Midian, first of all, if you don't know the history of Midian, Midian was a son of Abraham by his second wife, Keturah. Sarah had died and Abraham in his older age married a woman named Keturah. Genesis 25 verse two tells the story. And one of the sons born to Abraham through Keturah was named Midian. He is the father of the Midianites. Interesting because there's an ancient bitterness there that still is in play in Midian at this point when Israel is back in the land. The children of of Abraham through Isaac and Jacob are in the land. Well, the Midianites, what about us? Genesis 25 verse five gives us a little backstory. It says, Abraham gave all that he had to Ishtach. To Isaac, but to the sons of his concubines, which would include Keturah, Abraham gave gifts while he was still living and sent them away from his son Isaac eastward to the land of the east. In other words, Isaac got it all and the rest got some lovely parting gifts. So it's no wonder that what started with, just a few people, a few sons, turns into a seething bitterness over countless years, and you can trace all the bitterness today in the Middle East. You can trace back to Abraham's sons, Isaac's son, that is Esau. That's where it all comes from, and it, it remains to this day this, what the Bible refers to as an everlasting hatred that is still in play. Well, the Midianites they became Bedouin bandits. They became a people who moved about, interlopers. They primarily existed down in what we would call the Saudi Arabian Peninsula, the Arabian Peninsula today. So if you were to go down into the Sinai Peninsula of Egypt cross the Gulf of Aqaba, if you remember on a map, it's kinda like two fingers, you've got two gulfs that come up off the Red Sea, and the Gulf of Aqaba comes to the right of the Sinai Peninsula, and I believe that's where they cross the Red Sea. Still the Red Sea, but it's the Red Sea Gulf of Aqaba. Crossing there would bring them into the land of Midian. Paul says in Galatians chapter four, I think around verse 20 or so, 25 maybe, that Mount Sinai was in Midian, was in Arabia. So they crossed, and that's, that's the region of the Midianites, way down south from Israel. What are they doing up in Israel? Two things to note, one about the Midianites, one about the Amalekites. Number one, the Midianites are a picture of marauding sin. They are a picture in the Bible, and we see this from time to time, with the Midianites, they are marauders. They are sin that comes rushing in, sin that comes interloping from the outside. That's the Midianites. But it's not just the Midianites, note this, it's also the Amalekites, they would come up with them, verse three, the sons of the east, and they would all come against Israel. You may remember the Amalekites. Amalek was the son born of the concubine of Esau's son, Eliphaz. So there's the family connection, and they were the first ones to attack Israel. As they were coming out of Egypt, the Amalekites were attacking Israel from the rear, going after the weak ones, and finally, a full-on battle takes place in the Valley of Rephidim, where Joshua leads the people, and that's where Moses has to have a little help from his and her uh, to keep his, Aaron and her, to keep his arms up, right? And they win that battle, that's against the Amalekites. The Amalekites in the Bible are a picture of oppositional flesh. So on the one hand, the Midianites, We see this picture of marauding sin, but the Amalekites portray oppositional flesh. That is oppositional to God. It's the flesh's desire to rebel against creator God. Exodus chapter 17, verse 16, and it's Exodus 17 where we see Amalek coming against Israel at Rephidim. The Lord has sworn the Lord will have war against Amalek from generation to generation. There is war between the rebellious flesh of humanity and the Lord. And so that's, the Amalekites are that picture. They were a pain for Israel for centuries. In fact, even through this, beyond this, through the kings all the way down to the days of Esther and the Jews in exile in Persia and a certain Amalekite, an Agagite of the line of Amalek by the name of Haman, Haman, the Jew-hating leader in Persia. Now, that's a different story for another time. But so you've got the Midianites marauding sin. You've got the Amalekites, this picture of oppositional flesh. And so all together, here comes this mixed oppositional outsider invasion force of Midian and Amalek. They come in like locusts. Like we said, they impoverish, they strip the land, they destabilize the nation. They're terrorists. They're terrorists. They come in and they destabilize, they mess with the economy, they instill fear, and then they're gone. And they will come back and do it again, and then they're gone. And that's how they functioned as attacking peoples. By the way, the Midianites also were the first fierce camel riders. We know historically it was the Midianites who introduced camels into warfare. These guys, I don't know how they did it. I've ridden on the back of a few camels in my day, more than I would, I think three, which is more than I'd like to count. It is the most uncomfortable, backbreaking, spine-messing-up, chiropractor's nightmare of a ride you could ever have. People go, I wanna go to Israel and ride a camel. No, you don't. You don't. Throws you all over the place. These guys mastered camelback riding into warfare. So it, it kind of wild outsiders. By the way, the same satanic strategy is in use today. Not camels, but, but the devil charges in to oppress and to instill fear among God's people. And he does it for one reason to kill the harvest. Israel would have the produce of the earth and they would camp against them and destroy the produce of the earth. That's what they did. They would come in and just wipe things out. And and the, the devil still does that with the church today. With Christians today, he tries to instill enough fear that we'll just back it down a few notches and the harvest suffers for it. What do we do? Well, One of the weapons that we mentioned, the weapons of our warfare, perhaps the most powerful one or or at at least equally powerful as the sword of the word of God is intercessory prayer. Acts chapter four, verse 29. Now, Lord, take note of their threats and grant that your bondservants may speak your word with all confidence while you extend your hand to heal and signs and wonders take place through the name of your holy servant Jesus, we pray for the powerful work of God. We intercede on behalf of the saints and in this world so that the fight can go on. Well, verse seven, now it came about when the sons of Israel cried to the Lord on account of Midian, that the Lord sent a prophet to the sons of Israel. Only two people in the book of Judges are referred to as prophets, Deborah and this guy. We'll just call him Guy, because Guy has no name. This is the prophet Guy. You know, I love this, he comes in and he speaks, and there are a couple reasons I think this is significant. Number one, because you know, we don't have to make a name for ourselves. All we gotta do is speak the word of God. We're not on this earth to try and leave a footprint or a legacy or to impress you know, other human beings with our existence on the planet. I'm gonna die, and you know, Lord willing, and, and or depending on his time plan, I don't really wanna die, but let's say I die, I will die and be one of an innumerable number of Christians who died and went home to be with the Lord, name forgotten, no big deal, as long as the word of God continues, as long as the word of God continues stands. That's our calling. It's not about leaving our mark somewhere. It's about speaking the word of God. And that's why I like this prophet because he just comes and he speaks and we have no idea who he was. We will. I believe we will. This is one of the guys I want to meet, the nameless prophet. Where is that guy? Guy, where are you? I want to meet Guy there in heaven. But the other thing that's really interesting, well, read a little further. He says to the people of Israel, thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, it was I who brought you up from Egypt and brought you out from the house of slavery. I delivered you from the hands of the Egyptians and from the hands of all your oppressors and dispossessed them before you and gave you their land. And I said to you, I am the Lord. I am Yahweh, your God. Literally, I am Yahweh Elohim and you shall not fear the gods of the Amorites in whose land you live. But you have not obeyed me. That's it. There's your prophetic word. This is not a prophecy of deliverance. This is a prophecy of rebuke. And the people of Israel needed to hear this, that God's answer to their pain as they cry out because of the oppression of Midian and Amalek, they cry out and God's answer is, I just need to tell you all you brought this on yourselves. I need you all to understand You are in the mess of Midian because you walked away from me. I did not walk away from you. How many times in life do we say, Lord, where are you? Lord, why aren't you doing? Lord, how come you? And he's like, I'm right here. I never went anywhere. And this is what he's saying to Israel. And it's a pretty stunning rebuke. A prophet sent to call the people now to repent and to prepare for deliverance. Does that sound familiar? He sends a prophet so the people would repent and prepare to be delivered. Kind of like Isaiah said in Isaiah 40, verse three, a voice is calling, clear the way of the Lord in the wilderness, make smooth in the desert, a highway for our God. And you know who that was a prophecy of? John the Baptist, John chapter one, verse 19, this is the testimony of John when the Jews sent to him priests and Levites from Jerusalem to ask him, who are you? And he confessed and did not deny, but confessed, I am not the Christ. And they asked him, what then, are you Elijah? And he said, I am not. Are you the prophet? And he answered, no. I told you when we studied John, I love that his answers get shorter and shorter. (laughs) Are you the prophet? No. Then they said to him, well, who are you? So we may give answer to those who sent us. What do you say about yourself? And he said, and he quotes Isaiah 40, verse three, I am a voice of one crying in the wilderness, make straight the way of the Lord, as Isaiah the prophet said. So God sends a prophet that the people might repent and be ready for a deliverer. And this is a pattern we not only see through the judges, but this is the pattern of the Lord, a prophet for repentance and preparation before God arrives himself. Almost sounds like, Rick, you're saying that you expect Jesus to show up. Verse 11, then the angel of the Lord came, and there he is. And if you weren't with us when we talked about the Malach Yahweh, the angel of the Lord, Malach Yahweh in the Hebrew, this is a Christophany, This is very uh, clearly, to me, the more I look at this and the more I consider it, the more clear I am on this is a pre-incarnate visitation of Jesus Christ, because this is God in the flesh, the angel of the Lord. And you're gonna see him throughout the story of this next guardian. The angel of the Lord came and sat under the oak that was in Ophrah, not Oprah, Ophrah, which belonged to Yoash, the Abiezrite, and as, as his son Gideon was beating out wheat in the wine press in order to save it from the Midianites. The most important person in the story of this next guardian is not Gideon, it's Jesus. And what I love about the story of Gideon, the next three chapters, is he has several encounters with the Malach Yahweh. There is a relationship that is formed and developed over these three chapters between Gideon and the Malach Yahweh, the angel of the Lord. They have these conversations and, and you know Gideon throws out these questions and, and asks for this help and, and the Malach Yahweh is there interacting and it's absolutely fascinating, a fascinating interpersonal story, different than any of the judges so far. This is the first guardian where we actually get to see him interacting with the Lord in this intimate, personal, open, honest relationship. What I like most about Gideon is that Gideon gets personal. He gets personal. This is the first judge we've seen. It's not that the others didn't do it, but we haven't, we weren't told this But with Gideon, what we watch him do is press in to get to know the Lord who's leading him. He is not content just to go, oh, go fight Midian. Okay, and off he goes. He asks questions. He wonders why. He wants to know how. He asks for help. He prays for encouragement. He interacts with the Malach Yahweh, with the angel of the Lord, with God himself, Jesus, again, I believe, in a very personal way. Gideon gets personal, Gideon wants to know this Lord. You know what I wanna know? I wanna know why Gideon is beating out wheat in a wine press. That's what verse 11 tells us he's doing. What's going on here? Now, for a little cultural understanding, wheat was typically beaten out and separated on threshing floors. Threshing floors typically were up on hilltops or mounts. They were up on higher places intentionally because you'd go up there and you would beat out the wheat until you've got this mess of wheat and chaff. Then you'd take your winnowing fork and you would winnow or thresh or separate the wheat by throwing it up into the air and the breeze or wind on the hilltop would take all the chaff as the kernels fell back down to the ground. So the threshing floor, do you remember one of the most famous threshing threshing floors in all of Israel is today the Temple Mount? It was the threshing floor of Aruna, and, and that's where David bought that threshing floor. Why a threshing floor? Because it was up high. And throughout Israel, we have evidence even archeologically of threshing floors that were in higher elevations so that the wind could blow the chaff and let the grains fall then back down to the ground and be collected up. Wine presses were the opposite. Wine presses were down in gardens and valleys. They were low down to the ground so that as the wine poured out and came running out, it was easy to collect and to carry off. So you have wine presses in lower places, lower elevations, and you had uh, threshing floors in higher elevations. Well, here's Gideon in a wine press threshing the wheat. Why is he doing it? in order to save, the word, it's not there, in order to save from the Midianites, the answer to the question is one word. Why is he in a wine press beating out the wheat? Fear. It's fear. He doesn't wanna lose the wheat, but there's an implication here, even in the way that it's said that he was, Beating out the wheat in the wine press in order to save from the Midianites. It's self-protective. Remember, these are the days now where many of the Jewish people are hiding in caves. We gotta beat out the wheat. Well, I'm not doing it out there in the open. So he's down in a wine press where he can get the job done and keep an eye out and hopefully save the wheat and himself. And we do see at the outset of Gideon's story a very fearful man. Now, please understand, you would be too So let's not be too hard on Gideon. Wouldn't you want to protect yourself against these marauders and these invaders? But don't miss the beauty of this scene. I just love how picturesque the Bible is when it says, the Malach Yahweh, the angel of the Lord, came and sat under the oak that was in Ophrah, which belonged to Yoash the Abiezrite. And there's Gideon, and he's beating out out the wheat there. The scene is beautiful. The word Ophrah, Ophrah, the name of this place, it means dusty, dusty, dry place. And when you understand that, and you think about what the sentence just read, the angel of the Lord that is God in visible form, not invisible, but in visible form, So God, who is now visible, this Christophany, came to a fearful man in a dusty place by an oak tree and calls him, as we'll see in a moment, valiant warrior. Jesus came to us fearful and made of dust by way of a tree, the cross of Calvary, and he calls us to glory. He calls us valiant people. So there's a picture that's being set up, I believe here. Verse 12, the angel of the Lord appeared to him and said to him, the Lord is with you, O valiant warrior. The Lord is with you, O valiant warrior. If it had been me saying that, it would have been dripping with sarcasm. The Lord is with you, O valiant warrior. I don't believe it was at all. With God, it's not sarcastic, it's prophetic. Because God is seeing Gideon, not as he is in the moment, but as he will be. God recognizes that Gideon, not even yet a guardian, and yet the Malach Yahweh says, valiant warrior. I'm like, valiant warrior? How about about wheat beater in a wine press? That's a better title, I think, for Gideon. By the way, you know what Gideon's name means? Gidon in the Hebrew, hacker, guy's a hack. He's a hacker of, of, of the wheat. here, it also means hewer. Hacker or hewer, so one who, who hacks and chops down and cuts up, but God calls Gidon this, this hacker, he calls him not what he is, but what he's about to become. Romans 4, 17, God gives life to the dead and calls into being that which does not exist, which is what he's done with me and with many of you. Jesus just, he doesn't see us as we are, but as we will be. Jesus sees a bold and beautiful and pure, spotless bride. Ephesians 5:26, Christ loved the church and gave himself for it that he might sanctify it and cleanse it with the washing of water by the word, that he might present it to himself a glorious church, not having spot or wrinkle or any such thing, but that it should be holy and without blemish. And I can look at that and, on the one hand, say, Isn't that wonderful? And on the other hand, say, Is it true? Have you seen the church? Are we spotless? I gave you you a a poll as we began of Christians throughout America. We're not even on the same page about the end times. Is the church this beautiful, spotless bride? The Bible says we are. The Bible says we're holy. And I think, well, holy, yeah, if we spell it H-O-L-E-Y. The church, beautiful and spotless. Man, we are a mess. Our history is spotted and wrinkled. Our record is blemished. Our faith and our fearlessness often looks more like faithlessness and fearfulness. But Jesus, He doesn't see us that way. I have to be reminded of this from time to time. That Jesus calls us saints, hagios in the Greek, holy ones a people that he has purified. That's the power of the blood. God looks through, as as it were, the sheen of the blood of Jesus. When he looks at you, when he looks at me, he looks through the blood and sees spotlessness and sees a people who have been made pure, and that's individually as well as collectively in the church, a purified, spotless bride, not fallen flesh, but saints of the most high God, a royal bride. Priesthood, saved and sealed by the Holy Spirit of God Himself. And you know, that's also how He wants us to look at each other. And this is where it gets a little dicey. We are to look at each other and see saints, not see people who are messed up or problematic or annoyances or grace growers. <laughs> Every church has them. He says, look at each other the way I look at you, as holy ones. When you look at me, and I mean this in all sincerity, when you look at me, I hope that you don't see Pastor Rick. I hope that you see a person made new in Jesus Christ. Pastor Rick is flawed. Pastor Rick half the time doesn't know what he's doing, but I'm a new creation. I I was born again. I'm a follower of Jesus Christ because of Jesus Christ. I am a man saved by grace and made pure. And when God looks at me, (laughs) he sees pure. And I hope you, you try to see me that way. My call, my challenge is exactly the same, and that's to see you that way. To look at Andy and go, Andy's a new creation. Andy is made after the image, not only made in the image of God, but now reformed, reborn in the image of Jesus Christ. That's who you are. That's who we are. And that's how we're called to see each other. Uh, Second Corinthians chapter five, verse 16. Paul says, therefore, from now on, we recognize no one according to the flesh. We just don't look at each other that way anymore. Even though we have known Christ according to the flesh, yet now we know him in this way no longer. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he's a new creature. The old things are passed away. Behold, new things have come. And he says, now all these things are from God who reconciled us to himself through Christ and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. Namely, God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them. And he has committed to us the word of reconciliation so that he sees me, Rick, of all people, as pure and spotless, a saint. And then he says, oh, and by the way, Rick, you need to see Les the same way. You need to see Karen the same way. You need to look at these brothers and sisters and friends and family, you need to look at them the way I look at you. Man, that changes everything, especially when it's someone who really is annoying me. You know, and you know what I'm talking about, where you have someone in your life and they're just kinda, they've gotten under your skin a little bit and they're just like, I could just use a few years away from you, bro. And the Lord says, isn't she beautiful? Isn't he remarkable? That's one of mine, ahagios. Do you see the holiness in each other? That, it just changes everything. Well, back to Judges. Verse 13, after, Jesus calls him, the the angel of the Lord calls him the valiant warrior. Then Gideon says, see if this sounds a bit familiar to you, oh my Lord, if the Lord is with us, why then has all this happened to us? Have you ever said that? Well, God, if you're with me, why? You promised to be there for me, then how? No different than Gideon. So again, don't be hard on this guy. We've all been there. He goes on and says, and where are all his miracles which our fathers told us about? Saying, did not the Lord bring us up from Egypt? Where are the miracles? Where's the healing? Where's the raising from the dead? Where's the crossing of the sea? If you're God, and then he, kind of lowers the boom of the whole thing. But now the Lord has abandoned us and given us into the hand of Midian. And that is, that's the logic of man. I don't see the miracles. I don't know his presence. He must have abandoned me. Two plus two equals nine. We come up with the wrong conclusion because we're trying to think this, work this out in the flesh. That's exactly what Gideon is doing here. But let me ask a question, just sticking my nose in here. Who abandoned who? Do you understand now why the prophet of the Lord was sent before the Lord came to Gideon? The prophet of the Lord made it very clear. Guy said, (laughs) he said, you abandoned me. The Lord makes, you abandoned me. That's why you're having this problem. You left me. I didn't leave you. But now Gideon is turning it around. The Lord's abandoned us. He's left us. I know many of you have heard the old phrase, but it's just so good. If God seems far away, guess who moved? Guess who moved? What's remarkable to me about the Lord is in my life when he seemed far away, and it's because my eyes are off him and I'm going a different direction, it's like the moment I turn around, (laughs) there he is. I mean, he has remained close all the time. I just didn't know it because I was looking the other way. Well, God doesn't even grace Gideon's questions with a response. I love that. He just moves right beyond the doubts, the questions, the the sorrow. And in verse 14, the Lord looked at him and said, note this, it says the Lord looked at him and said. Let me be more clear. It says Yahweh looked at him and said, I thought the angel of the Lord was talking to him. He is. The Lord looked at him and said, Go in this your strength and deliver Israel from the hand of Midian. Have I not sent you? Have I not sent you is the closest we get to God answering Gideon's doubts. Let me tell you what this this looks like. Question, why has all this happened to us? God says, go. Question, where are the miracles? God says, go. Question, how is it that you've abandoned us? God says, go. Go. Go in this year's strength. First of all, God has no need to answer any of our questions. He didn't have to defend himself, he's God. We're created beings, he's the creator and ultimately in that design, he knew do whatever he wants. He owes us nothing. But in this case, when Gideon or when Rick says, why have you abandoned us? God's response is, go in faith, go. Because he knows what Gideon needs. God could give him simple answers right now. The answers wouldn't be enough. The answers would be followed by a new question. So rather than just trying to give you know, superficial answers, God goes deep and he gives Gideon what Gideon needs. Go in faith. Go deliver this people. Have I not sent you? I'm with you. Go because faith in God yields the only answer that will satisfy Gideon. He's gonna have to walk this out. He's gonna have to go in the Lord. See, this is where the, the theological, theoretical becomes experiential. God says, go in this your strength and deliver Israel. So far in the story, the strength of Gideon is about enough to beat out some wheat in a wine press. This is a fearful guy, cowering, like all of Israel was cowering. This does not look like strength to me. And God says, go in this your strength and deliver. So I say, wait a minute, Lord, Lord, what strength are you talking about? This your strength is the strength of the Lord. How do I know? Because he says, have I not sent you? Go in this your strength, what strength? Have I not sent you? It's my strength I'm sending you in. Do you understand what I'm saying here? That God says, go in this strength. I'm the one sending you. Therefore, your strength will be from me. God sends us in his strength. When he says go, it's not that you go figure it out. It's not that you go work it out. It's not that you go make it happen by your own power. God will send you in his strength. And by the way, is this the angel of the Lord or the Lord speaking? Thank you. It's an affirmative answer. It's very simple. Yes, the Lord is speaking. The angel of the Lord is speaking. And if you're uncertain still about this, about this Christophany, about the angel of the Lord, I encourage you to go back to chapter two and listen through the teaching again because we really broke that down in Judges 2. Or if that's not enough, go back and listen all the way through the teachings in John's gospel. Specifically chapter one, and chapter eight at the end of the chapter, and chapter 14 of the Gospel of John, where it makes it absolutely clear who Jesus Christ really is. God made flesh. Or just listen up, because I'm gonna show you something else here in a minute. Verse 15, he said to him, O Lord, how shall I deliver Israel? Behold, my family is the least in Manasseh. Yeah, I remember something about Bethlehem Ephrathah being the least among the tribes of Judah, or the clans of Judah and out of you will come one for my people, right? It's always the least. Behold, my family's the least in Manasseh, and I'm the youngest in my father's house. We're the least, I'm the youngest, that is God's favorite place to work. With the youngsters and the weaklings. See, with the Lord, it's always calling over qualification. Think about that, he's not looking for your resume. He's looking for your ear to hear and respond. He's not looking for your strength or for you to prove yourself. He's not looking at your heritage or your personal appeal or your college degree or your life experience. None of that matters. That is irrelevant to the Lord. The question is, will you respond when I call? Have I not sent you? Go in this your strength. It's calling overqualification. Why? Because the glory belongs to him, not to us. If it was based on my qualifications and God God says, Rick, because of your degrees and your background and your history, I'd like you to go. And I went and I was successful. Guess who gets the glory for that? I do. It's because of my degrees and my massive, I was gonna say intellect, but ego may work even better. It's because I pulled it off. Because of course I was prepared for this as opposed to calling the weaklings and the younglings, and saying, I want you to go. Because when they go, God gets all the glory. God has chosen, 1 Corinthians 1, 27, the foolish things of the world to shame the wise. God has chosen the weak things of the world to shame the things which are strong and the base things of the world and the despised God has chosen, the things that are not, so that he may nullify the things that are, so that no man may boast before God. So it's not who I am, it's who he is. That's what matters. And so it's all I do is I respond to God who says, have I not sent you? Uh, 2 Corinthians 12, nine, a little bit, Paul says this. He says, "My, my uh, he said to me, my grace is sufficient for you for power is perfected in weakness. Let's get that through our thick skulls. <laughs> Going back to what I shared on Sunday. Let's get that into our heads and into our hearts that Power is perfected in weakness. Paul says, most gladly, therefore, I will rather boast about my weaknesses so that the power of Christ may dwell in me. Therefore, I am well content with weaknesses, with insults, with distresses, persecutions, with difficulties for Christ's sake. Why? For when I am weak, what? Then I'm strong. It is in our weakness that God is glorified. And before we put on a single strap of God's armor, think about this. That starts in Ephesians six twelve. What does Paul say in Ephesians chapter 6, verse 10? Be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. And then put on the full armor of God by all means. Armor up. By the way, it's God's armor anyway. But be strong in the Lord. Verse 16. The Lord said to him, surely I will be with you and you shall defeat Midian as one man. Ultimately, there'll be 300 men. But but the idea is a tiny little, it's not gonna take much to do this because I will be with you. Verse 17, so Gideon said to him, if now I have found favor in your sight, then show me a sign that it is you who speak with me. Please do not depart from here until I come back and bring out my offering and lay it before you. And he, that is the Malach Yahweh, said, I will remain until you return. I love this. So it begins Gideon asking for signs. Show me a sign, I will never forget. This runs in my mind. Anytime I run across a verse like this, I think of Steve Martin back in the 70s, right in the middle of one of his stand up routines. It's one of, on one of his early albums. I think it's on the album Let's Get Small. I'm not sure and I'm not, by the way, recommending that, but he, at one point, I'll never forget him saying, if there is a God, give us a sign. See, I told you there was. And it was a great point. You know, I told you that, And you couldn't get anything out? You guys are looking at me like, I don't know. Maybe if we were in a nightclub, a smoky nightclub in the early 70s, you would have thought that was funny. I don't know, but... If there's a God, and this is what he says, show me a sign that it is you who speak to me. I need a sign. Didn't Jesus say an evil and adulterous generation seeks after a sign? He did say that, it's Matthew sixteen four. That's a direct quote. So we come across Gideon and he begins to ask for signs. He will, again, before the chapter's out, what do we do with this? We'll talk about that on Sunday. Verse 19. Then Gideon went in and prepared a young goat and unleavened bread from an ephah of flour, and he put the meat in a basket and the broth in a pot and brought them out to him under the oak and presented them. And then the angel of God said to him, take the meat and the unleavened bread and lay them on this rock and pour out the broth. It doesn't mean like no soup for you, pour the broth out. He means pour it over over the bread and the meat on the rock. So this is all an offering that's taking place. Pour it, pour the broth over it, he says, and he did so. And then verse 21 says, then the angel of the Lord put out the end of the staff that was in his hand and touched the meat and the unleavened bread and fire sprang up from the rock and consumed the meat and the unleavened bread and then the angel of the Lord vanished from his sight. <laughs> so cool. This is the stuff, I'm telling you, this just would make such a cool movie. Here's your sign, Gideon. Show me a sign. Show me that it's you that I'm talking to. Show me a sign if I found favor in your sight. And he says, but wait a minute. And he runs back into his house and he prepares a pretty nice little meal here, you a burger and some, and some soup, and brings it out. And then the Lord receives that sign and vanishes in front of him. This is amazing. See, the conversation and the worship offering, this is a worship offering that he gives. And this moment, they are all received by the angel of the Lord. This is a moment, don't miss this, of worship on the part of Gideon. And the angel of the Lord receives this worship Here's the thing about the Malach Yahweh. In every occurrence, either the person at hand recognizes his deity or he does himself. But every time we see the angel of the Lord, it's either gonna be the human being interacting with the angel of the Lord or the angel of the Lord himself who recognizes his own deity, that he is in fact God. I mean, go back. We saw in Genesis chapter 16, verse seven, Hagar, out there in the wilderness, all alone, feeling lost and despised. Hagar, it says, the angel of the Lord, Malak Yahweh, found her by a spring, Genesis 16, seven, a spring of water in the wilderness. As the story continues down in verse 13, it says, and then she called the name of the Lord. She called the name of Yahweh who spoke to her, you are a God who sees. I thought it was the angel of the Lord. She now calls God, El Roy, you are the God who sees. She calls the angel of the Lord, who is the Lord, you're the God who sees. So right there, there whoa, wait a minute. We just, she just assumes that the angel of the Lord is Yahweh, is God himself. Genesis twenty two eleven. Abraham's up on Mount Moriah with Isaac, and it says in verse 11, the angel of the Lord called to him from heaven and said, Abraham, Abraham, and he said, here I am, and he said, do not stretch out your hand against the ladder, do nothing to him, for now I know that you fear God, since you have not withheld your son, your only son from me, says the angel of the Lord. This is God, again, Genesis 31, 11, We see Jacob, it says the angel of God said to me in a dream, Jacob, and I said, here I am. It says, I am the God of Bethel, where you anointed a pillar, where you made a vow to me. Now arise, leave this land, and return to the land of your birth. Who said I'm the God of Bethel? The angel of God, the Malach Elohim in that case. Or Exodus chapter three, verse two, the angel of the Lord appeared to Moses in a blazing fire from the midst of the bush. Exodus tells us, and he said also, I am the God of your father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob. Moses hid his face for he was afraid to look at God. I thought it was the angel of the Lord. Yes, it is. So again, in all of these instances, and here with Gideon, Gideon comes with a worship offering. This is a a menchat in, in Hebrew. The menchat is a sacrificial offering. That's the word that is used when he says, back in verse 18, don't depart from here until I come back to you and bring out my offering, my menchat, my worship offering to you. Verse 22, tells us then when Gideon saw that he was the angel of the Lord, he said, alas, O Lord God. So it becomes so clear here. Alas, O Lord God, for now I have seen the angel of Yahweh face to face. (laughs) Who are you talking to, Gideon? The one and the same God, God in flesh. The invisible God, visible. Jesus before Christ. I have seen the angel of the Lord, he says, face to face. By the way, look at this. When does Gideon recognize that this is the Lord? When the unleavened bread was offered and he vanished. Does that sound familiar? Luke 24, 30? At the dinner table at a town called Emmaus? Where Jesus was with the two men, he reclined with them. He took bread, blessed it, breaking it, began giving it to them. Then their eyes were opened at the offering of the bread, at the blessing of the bread, and they recognized him. And what did he do? He vanished from their sight. So he'd done this before. We just see these pictures. and This is why Jesus says you search the scriptures because you think that in them you have life. It is these that testify of me. So the Lord said to him in response to Gideon's fear, Gideon's like, oh no, I've seen the angel, of God. I've seen the Lord. He's terrified and the Lord said to him, peace to you. Do not fear, you shall not die. And then Gideon built an altar there to the Lord and named it <laughs> Yahweh Shalom. The Lord is peace. And to this day, it is still in Ophrah of the rites. It's still there. I love that the, the writer mentions this. The Lord is peace. I think the writer, as we talked about, is Samuel. And he says, it's still there. You can go check it out. You know, to his readers in that day. What are you afraid of? What are you afraid of right now? Is there anything in your life that's unsettling you or destabilizing you? What are you afraid of, COVID, the flu, RSV, all three? (laughs) What are you fearing, money troubles? Are you afraid of the global world order or the governments that have gone so woke they can't even see the truth anymore? Are you afraid of death? Listen, it's still there. Like like Samuel, I believe, it's still there. To this day, Yahweh Shalom, this is still there in Ophrah of the Aviezrites. In Ophrah of the Aviezrites, Ophrah, I told you already, means dust. Avi, Avi, Abba, means father. And Ezri, means helper, dust of my father, the helper. He's still there. The father's peace still reaches into the dust of my life. The Lord knows we are, we are but dust. And yet the father's helper dwells in this dust. He is still our peace. He is still the only hope. For our peace, John 14, 27, he is still the one who says to this day, Peace I leave with you. My peace I give to you. Not as the world gives, do I give to you. Do not let your heart be troubled, nor let it be fearful. I, I so love that God's response to fear and trembling is not knock it off, it's peace. It's peace. It's all right. Yahweh is peace. These things, Jesus said, I have spoken to you so that in me you may have peace. In the world you have tribulation, but take courage. I have overcome the world, John 16, 33. Verse 25. Now on the same night, the Lord said to him, take your father's bull and a second bull, seven years old, and pull down the altar of Baal, which belongs to your father, and cut down the Asherah that's beside it and build an altar to the Lord your God on top of this stronghold in an orderly manner, because God is not a God of confusion, in an orderly manner, and take a second bowl and offer a burnt offering with the wood of the Asherah, which you shall cut down. This is how far the people had wandered from faith in the one true God. Yahweh is still named in Israel, but they have now syncretized and conflated faith. And the worship of Yahweh with the Baals and the Asherot and Gideon's own dad has constructed a statue to Baal and one to Asherah there in town. God says, you gotta take it down. All this mixture and syncretism of faith, you gotta stop this. How old, by the way, was the second bull for the sacrifice? Seven years. How long had they been under Midianite oppression? Seven years. This bull is substitutionary atonement for their sin. This bull is a picture of the last seven years of oppression. Let's kill it. Let's take out the bull. Let's get rid of the bull of the last seven years of your faithlessness and your oppression. Let's just kill it dead. Let's substitutionarily atone for the transgression so I can remove the oppression. See, this whole thing, the battles of Gideon, these famous battles, and we'll get into them. I, I think after the first of the year, maybe on, on New Year's Day, we'll, we'll hit the, the first great battle of Gideon. The one about which my dad one, one day said, we were, we were wrestling, and I said, I'll take you down. I think I was like five. I'll take you down, Dad. And he said, you and whose army? And I said, Gideon's. I'd heard the story. My dad was like, that's a good army. <laughs> Before we get to the physical battle, the spiritual battle has to happen. And before I can fight physical fights and stand for the truth in my skin in this world, I gotta win the spiritual battles. I gotta fight the spiritual battles. Because our battle is not against flesh and blood, but against the powers, right? And so it begins with a spiritual battle, verse 27. Then Gideon took 10 men of his servants and did as the Lord had spoken to him, And because he was too afraid of his father's household and the men of the city to do it by day, he did it by night. (laughs) Oh, valiant warrior. Okay, you know what? So he's still shaking out the fear. Gotta start somewhere. And I love that he did this. And the fact that what we see here as he engages spiritually against the false god Baal and the false goddess Asherah, yes, he does it by night, but God is working through this valiant warrior. Think about this, Nicodemus came to Jesus by night. Okay, at least he came to Jesus. John the Baptist sent Jesus' messengers when he was doubting and fearful in prison. You go, oh, John, no, no, at least he sent to Jesus. Good for you, John, way to go, Nicodemus. Peter denied Jesus, John Mark bailed on a mission, and Paul killed Christians, but they all came to Jesus. And that's the point, that's the victory That's the courage, by the way. It's not to do something in broad daylight and show how great and strong you are. It's just go to Jesus. Whether you go at night or not is irrelevant. He can work with you wherever you are, day or night, as long as you're willing, as long as you will just go to him. Verse 28, when the men of the city arose early in the morning, behold, the altar of Baal was torn down and the Asherah, which was beside it, was cut down and the second bull was offered on the altar, which had been built. And they said to one another, who did this thing? And when they had searched about and inquired, they said, Gideon, the son of Yoash, did this thing. So he didn't really hide his tracks very well. Then the men of the city said to Yoash, bring out your son, that he may die. For he has torn down the altar of Baal, and indeed he has cut down the Asherah, which was beside it. These are Israelites, my friends. And they wanna kill a guy for taking out an idol? But Yoash said to all who stood against him, will you contend for Baal and will you deliver him? Whoever will plead for him shall be put to death by morning. If he is a god, let him contend for himself because someone has torn down his altar. Therefore on that day he named him Yerubael, or yeah, that's, that's good, Yerubal, Yerub Yerubbaal. He names him Jerubael, as we would read it, that is to this day, let Baal contend against him because he had torn down his altar. And I think this is, I mean, it's great. Gideon's dad stands up for the Lord, stands with his son. This is Gideon's dad's altar to Baal that his son has just torn down. This could have gone one of two ways, right? This could have gone, go to your room, You are grounded for the rest of your life. Yeah, I mean, he could have reacted negative or he stands with his son and that's what we see happen and sometimes it's the tail that wags the dog. Sometimes the son or the daughter will bring conviction to the parents and this is what we see with Gideon. Yoash is influenced by his son to actually take a stand for Yahweh and Gideon has now gone from an idol hacker of wheat in a wine press to a hacker of idols And he gets a new nickname, Jerubal, contender of Baal. And this will stay with him the rest of his life. The one who contends with Baal, Jerubal, verse 33. And then all the Midianites and the Amalekites and the sons of the east assembled themselves and they crossed over and camped in the valley of Jezreel. That is the valley of, anyone know? Megiddo, Armageddon. In the Valley of Megiddo, which, by the way, is a favorite teaching spot of mine in Israel. I say that every single stop we make. This is my favorite place to teach in Israel. So the spirit of the Lord came upon Gideon and he blew a shofar and the Avizrites were called together to follow him. Whoa, wait a minute, what? His family is now aligned with him because of what he did, because he fought the spiritual battle for their sake. They're all with him on his side and he sent messengers throughout Manasseh, and they also were called together to follow him, and he sent messages to Asher and Zebulun and Naphtali, and they came up to meet them, all told, we're talking about 32,000 Israelites that rush to the side to the leadership of this hacker of Gideon, ready to fight with Gideon. Now, that's 32,000 Israelites, we'll see this uh, from chapter seven, that is compared to 135,000 Midianites. And it's about 31,700 men too many for the Lord to use. Because <laughs> he'll whittle this down to just 300 men. But we're gonna stop there for tonight. We're gonna leave this fifth guardian, we'll come back on Sunday, but you know what? This is a man, Gideon, who wears his faith on his sleeve, which is what I, he's just so real and raw and honest He says what he thinks, he asks the Lord, he asks him literally, hey, if it's you, show me. I need to know, give me a sign. And it's that whole issue of the sign. We've seen this, we will see this continue with Gideon. Lord willing, we're gonna have some time to get to know him a little bit, which is more than we can say for the other guardians so far. Their stories were much more brief. Now we get three chapters with one guy, but here's the thing. Most importantly, above all else, through all these amazing encounters, we're gonna get to know Jesus even better because he's the key person in the story. Matthew chapter seven, verse 21. Jesus says, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven but he who does the will of my father who is in heaven will enter. Many will say to me on that day, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and in your name cast out demons and in your name perform many miracles? And then I will declare to them. And to me, I think this is the most fearful statement in all the scriptures. This is the one that makes me tremble. Jesus says, I'll say to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you who practice Lawlessness, because Jesus wants us to know that he knows that we know him and that we are known by him. See, it's, it's that personal. It's 1 Corinthians 13, 12. I think I quoted this last week, but for now we see in a mirror dimly, then face to face, now I know in part, then I will know fully, just as I also have been fully known. And it is all about knowing Jesus and being known by Jesus. That's what this whole life is about. And we're gonna see more of that with Gideon. Let's pray. Father, your interaction with your servants are so intriguing to me because we're sitting here in a room full of your servants. And every one of us can declare at some level, in some way, through through different interactions and 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 occasions and Experiences and encounters, we have known you, we, we've seen you at work. Father, some of these encounters are weird, <laughs> and some of them are so simple, so precious. And Father, it's it's through these interactions that we have with you personally that our faith is encouraged and, and truly truly gets built up. It's through hearing you. And faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of Christ. And so when we look at Gideon, we thank you for Gideon. We thank you for all the guardians and their example and what they did to stand up for and to save Israel. But really, we want to see you, Lord. We are thankful that you chose to show us your interpersonal relationships with all these people throughout the scriptures because it reminds (laughs) us, Lord, of our relationship with you and how important it is to you that we know you. And that we know that you know us. I pray, Father, tonight for peace for my brothers and sisters. I pray for the comfort of your spirit. And I pray that the knowledge of your knowing us would really seep into our hearts. In Jesus' name, amen.